Hello, and welcome to the Flathead Beacon Podcast. I'm Andy Viano. This week, we're talking to one of the central figures in the January 20th cover story, Care in Crisis, and that's Whitefish Care and Rehabilitation Center Executive Director Reed Crickmore. I'll talk with Reed about his facility's experience going through one of the deadliest COVID-19 outbreaks in Flathead County back in August, and how he and his staff are trying to position the facility for success after a year that included allegations of negligent behavior, dismal ratings from state health officials, and a series of lawsuits, some of them filed by the families of residents who died during the outbreak. Tristan Scott wrote this week's cover story, and in it, he goes over the same and shares touching and harrowing stories from residents and staff. And I would urge you to read that story right now at flatheadbeacon.com or anywhere you can find a free copy of this week's issue. And after I talk with Reed, stick around for a quick recap of the biggest news stories from the last seven days. But before any of that, a quick reminder that this episode and all of the work we produce is made possible in part by the members of the Flathead Beacon Editors Club. For as little as $5 per month, club members help power our company and keep all the work we produce free to consume, both in print and online. And club members are eligible for some great perks, too. To find out more or to join the club today, visit Beacon Editors Club. All right, let's turn back to this week's cover story, Care in Crisis, and the story of Whitefish Care and Rehabilitation Center. My colleague Tristan Scott has written a number of in-depth pieces documenting all the troubles at Whitefish Care and Rehab in the last year, and I would urge you to check them out along with this week's cover story to get a full picture of everything that's gone on there. Reed Crickmore, the facility's executive director, just arrived in July of 2019, and he inherited what, by his own admission, was a troubled property that had been through multiple ownership changes in a short period of time before his arrival. Then, just six months after he started on the job, the novel coronavirus was discovered, and that's where our conversation begins. And Reed, I want to go back to maybe almost a year ago when we first started hearing about the novel coronavirus outside of, of the United States and then eventually into this country and, and, and across the country, including here in Montana and the Flathead Valley. At what point did you and your staff start making preparations or, or come to the realization that this was going to get here, that, that we weren't going to be spared? And, and I guess what sort of preparations were you making at that time? Yeah, so I think we really started hearing about it in the healthcare world here in Montana in about January or February even of last year. It still hadn't really made its way into the U.S. However, when I think it was in February, it hit the Seattle building, the Life Care Center uh, building in Seattle. It really kind of made all of us take a step back. And that's when we started to see a lot of restrictions coming to nursing homes. So um, March 12th of 2020, we officially notified all the families of the facility that we would be locking down. And that evening at 5 p.m., we, we, we did full lockdown. Several family members came in. It was a very tough decision for us, but knew, we knew that it was a necessary decision. Um, it was very hard to tell family members that they wouldn't be coming in to see their loved ones. At that time, we believed it was only for two weeks. So, um, you know, it, at that time, it was tough, but we thought that 
you know, this will be over soon. And we promise the families, you know, you'll be able to come back in to see your loved ones just a couple of weeks. We just got to get through this, you know, slow the spread, flatten the curve. And we're going to do our best on, in our part to, to keep the hospitals as empty as we can. Obviously, that turned into a lot more than two weeks. And it is, it's been an up and down road for the last year. I know that, thankfully, we don't have to deal with too many global pandemics. But, but infection disease control or infectious disease control. I think is is uh, an important part of what you do. What what is the pre-COVID procedures you had in place to try and mitigate the spread of infectious disease? And, and I guess how did those have to be altered for something as contagious uh, as we we now know COVID nineteen to be? Yeah, as part of our regulations, we have to have a infection control nurse that puts in a minimum of twenty hours a week in the facility. We actually have a full time infection control nurse and have had one for well over a year. Prior to that, we had someone doing it only part-time, but we've had a full-time infection control nurse since about January of last year. You know, I think on a daily basis, infection control is a, a really big part of what we do in, in a nursing home, obviously, with the frailties and the comorbidities that a lot of our patients face. Uh, it's really crucial, you know, during flu season, we all our, all our residents, all our staff are vaccinated by us. We make sure that we do our part in wearing masks and isolation, and um, we do education and we put policies and procedures in place. Um, what we didn't realize with COVID nineteen is the scale and how quickly it can take take hold of a facility. Um, I think that was a nuance to everyone involved with COVID nineteen across the country. I think it took everyone a little bit by surprise at the fact that the asymptomatic side of COVID is what's really scary. With the symptomatic side, it's very similar to a flu in the aspects of you know who has it and you know who doesn't have it. You know, but in the asymptomatic side, you really, it, it's a ghost, it's blind and, and you can't see it. So um, I think that was really scary for everyone. And uh, the scale of the need for PPE, I think that was another big shock factor for us is the amount of PPE we'd be burning through. Um, at one point in our outbreak in August, we were going through over a thousand gallons a week. That is a huge supply of, of PPE that is needed and suppliers have a hard time keeping up. Let's go to August then. You sort of alluded to the fact that, that it was, you guys believe, an, an asymptomatic person who first brought COVID-19 into the facility uh, you can read in Tristan's story this week about you know just how quickly everything happened, but I wonder if if you can share a little bit more ab- about just how sudden it seems like, at least from the outside, it went from that first case being discovered to a to a very large outbreak. Yeah, you know, we had one staff member who had turned out to be asymptomatic. The way we figured it out was they had worked um, several different units in the building. They were asymptomatic. Um, at that time, we were doing screenings. We were doing everything we were supposed to do when people were coming to the building to start their shift, hand washing, screenings, following CDC regulations and guidelines at that point. But with an asymptomatic person with no temperature, no cough, no shortness of breath, no other side effects, it was really hard to, to understand who had it and who didn't. That was, that, that was what really caught us off guard. And we had our first case, we traced it back to August 12th, but our first resident case was the Sunday following August 12th. I got a call in the morning that, you know, we had eight people overnight that started having temperatures and um, started having symptoms of COVID-19. Not long after that, we started 
you know, getting our test results back from August 12th, because once we had that first person we found out was positive, we tested everyone in the facility. So not long after that, we got all our test results back and realized that, yeah, she not only was that, that, that staff member positive, but we had several residents who also started testing positive. Um, immediately, our isolation unit went up. We moved these residents into our isolation unit and um, treated them as such, you know, that was needed as an infectious, as an infectious disease needed. We, we had several staff members, kudos to our staff who volunteered to work in the COVID unit, putting not only themselves at harm's way, but their family, right? But um, at the end of the day, we're here to take care of residents. And I think that's what, what really drove our staff to, to do that. And it happened so quickly. I think we went from eight to 16 to in the 20s or 30s within a week. It really took hold and, and moved so quickly through the building that, you know, it, it took everyone by surprise. We were as ready as we thought we could be at the time. But I think when something like that happens, you realize, okay, there's a, there's a lot more work to be done here. So that's what we did. From August 12th, from that first case, uh, you say everybody gets tested right away. How long did it take for those test results to come back? You know, our first test results were probably our slowest results, unfortunately. Those were the results we needed the quickest. I think our first test results took about nine to 10 days to get back. And that was the most detrimental because we did have quite a few residents who were asymptomatic. And so we didn't know that they had it. We were moving people with symptoms into our isolation units, but people who weren't showing any symptoms or signs of COVID-19, we were treating as if they didn't have it. We were still all residents were still in isolation in their rooms. However, we weren't treating them that they were, as they were infectious. And so we didn't have those test results to go off. And once we got those back, we realized, okay, we have a lot more, a lot more positive cases than we imagined at the beginning. And so it took a full team effort to really get everyone on that COVID unit. And then it was just, it was testing twice a week, every week for about a month. And that's how we caught all our cases over time. Eventually, I mean, I think some of the reporting at the time was that it, it was it was essentially the the entire population of the facility had through the course of the outbreak tested positive. Is that is that correct? I mean, what was the in the in the final accounting? What was the scope? Yeah. So at the final, at the end of it, uh, we had we had total we had fifty four residents test positive for COVID nineteen. We had ten residents that never tested positive. And we had 13, uh, 13 people pass away to COVID-19. So pretty large numbers and a very fast outbreak. Um, I think across the state, we're seeing a lot of outbreaks and there's slow trickles, um, five here, two there. Um, ours was really, you know, for lack of a better term, ours was, you know, wildfire. It was all at once and then it was over. And it was not a fun month for anyone in the building, but um, it was a very rapid, rapid outbreak. Are there things when you look back, maybe thinking specifically about the the immediate decision to isolate only those who were symptomatic at the very beginning? And, and I know, obviously, we knew a lot less, right, in, in mid-August than we do now in mid-January. But, you know, are there things that, that as you guys assess that, that you, you know now that, that maybe you wish you had the knowledge of back then? that could explain why this outbreak moved so quickly as opposed to to the kind of trickles that you were just describing? You know, looking back, I think we were given some tools after the fact that I wish we had had during that outbreak. The federal government released these rapid testing machines to nursing homes 
But at the beginning, they were only releasing these machines um, for rapid testing to facilities who had had outbreaks. So in August, until August, we weren't on that list. Um, our sister facility in California had had an outbreak, um, like most facilities in California, well before August. Um, and they had received this machine, but we hadn't. They overnighted it to us, but by the time they got it, we were halfway through our outbreak. So really, it didn't do us a whole lot of good in that moment. Had we had something similar to that prior, I think, to get faster test results, but also just on, on a facility level, I think there are things. I think there were things that we could have done to really like mentally prepare the staff. I think the staff was prepared education-wise. I think the staff was prepared for what they thought was COVID nineteen. But I think mentally it took a really big toll on a lot of our staff. Um, I, I think there's there's things that we could have done better to mentally prepare the staff to say, hey, this is going to be a very, very hard month, but there is light at the end of the tunnel and it will end at some point. And I know it was very tough. There was a lot of tears. There was a lot of, a lot of rough days and a rough nights in the facility for staff and residents, of course. But I think we could have probably done better, you know, mentally preparing the staff as, as best we could. There has also been, you know, some reporting, including by by Tristan and and our paper here about some of the visits conducted by regulators, uh, some of the the deficiencies noted in those visits. There are are a number of lawsuits that have been filed here in district court regarding, well, sprawling lawsuits, some of them, but but in part regarding how the outbreak was handled. I mean, how, how do you respond to to some of that and, and maybe some, some questions about, you know, the, the way that, that your facility was operating at the time and, and in some of those reports before the pandemic as well. Yeah, you know, and, I, and one of the things I alluded to with Tristan too is we try really hard every day. I mean, the main focus every day is, okay, how do we give great care to residents? And I, I think to, to speak on the, the specific topics going on, you know, the, the previous findings and surveys and things like that, um, I, I think, you know, we're a facility that struggled for probably over a decade when you look back. Um, a facility that struggled, not just compliance-wise, but staffing-wise. It's been, you know, it's been, this facility has had a tough go. Um, when we took over in 2019, within a year, the facility had been through three owners in one year. Um, that's really tough on staff and residents. And so I think the culture, the idea of, hey, we're in this for the long run, we want to take care of people. I think a lot of that takes time. You know, we're hoping, we're hoping that it doesn't take a decade to reverse the decade of not so great, right? But it, it can take time to fix a lot of this, the baseline cultural problems within a facility, right? Um, and gaining trust of the community back when you have things that have happened in this facility over the last, you know, not just the last year, but the last 10 years as well. I think it really, you lose a lot of the confidence and the trust of, uh, of the community. And what we want to portray to the community is that we're here for the long run. We want this facility to succeed. We want to take care of people and we will fall short at times. We won't always be perfect. You know, one of the things I was told when I first started in this industry was you can't expect perfection. You can hope for perfection, but you can't expect perfection because we're human beings, right? It's human beings taking care of human beings and we do the best we can every day. And I, I think that's one of the things that I really want to portray more than anything, especially you know, touching on some of the past surveys and findings there. Um, we really try hard. And to all those findings, we've written plans of correction and worked tirelessly to meet the standards that, that they found that we were deficient in day in, day out for months on end. Um, we have worked hard to fix those problems, to make it a better place. 
And um, for that, you know, we we're appreciative of the Department of Public Health for finding our our shortcomings and pointing them out and saying, hey, you need to fix this. You know, it's we're not denying that we're you know that we're not errant. We're not saying we're perfect. You know, we're we try hard every day. So I think that's really what I want to portray more than anything. Well, let's talk about some of those those places where you think you have improved. You've been there on the job now for. For a year and a half, which I guess is is short of the the maybe decade that it will take, as you say, to to turn everything around. But I'm sure there are some some steps that that have been taken that made that uh, that that uh, you're particularly proud of. So, what are some of the things that that you think you're doing better now than uh, than when you first got there? You know, I think one of the biggest things that I saw when I entered this building was the culture of of, of retention, recruitment of staff. You know, um, at the end of the day, we can we can't take care of residents if we don't have staff. I think that's, you know, that's a no brainer for anyone. And one thing I noticed in a COVID outbreak, you, you were testing the grit and the endurance of your staff. You know, it's, it's a long haul for a month and it's hard. We had no staff quit during our COVID outbreak. Not one staff member left the facility, not, not, not one staff member quit. We had very, very few call-offs, except for those who maybe had got, had contracted COVID themselves. Um, we did have 14 staff members that got COVID during that outbreak, but they worked tirelessly. I had, you know, I had staff working. Some of my staff worked and volunteered to work 48, 72-hour shifts straight just to take care of people. And th- that's something that I think on the outside people don't realize. But uh, when you're here in the facility, you see that kind of dedication. I'm really proud of that. I think that's something that's come a really long way since July of 2019 when I started. Not only that, but I feel that we also have the right the right people in place that really do want the residents to get better. We have a great therapy department. We have a great, you know, social services department that really looks after the residents and is is out for their best interest. Wants them to improve, wants them to go home or wants them to, you know, have a good life in the facility if this is where they're going to reside for the rest of their life. So, I think, you know, we've seen a lot of improvement in just general care with our residents over especially over the last year. But overall, I think I'm really proud of, of the, the ability we've had to grow a culture in the facility of staff who want to be here, who want to take care of residents, and who are dedicated to the facility. Reed, thank you so much for, uh, for sitting down and, and for the time, for your openness with, with our staff. Really appreciate it, and, uh, and best of luck uh, moving forward. Andy, thank you so much. I appreciate it. You can read this week's cover story, Care in Crisis, right now at flatheadbeacon.com and catch up on all of Kristen Scott's reporting on the outbreak at Whitefish Care and Rehab, on the facility reviews, the lawsuits, and more. And again, that's all at our website, flatheadbeacon.com. Now, here are the biggest stories from the last seven days as of 9 p.m. on Tuesday, January 19th. Flathead County held its first COVID-19 vaccine clinic on Tuesday, distributing 120 doses to eligible residents at the Flathead County Fairgrounds. There will be future clinics in the coming days and weeks at the same location, but with supplies of the vaccine still in question and a timeline unclear, county health officials are waiting till they have doses in hand from the state before setting formal appointments. All inoculations given by the county health department will be scheduled by appointment only. And right now, residents age 70 or over, those between 16 and 69 with serious complicating medical conditions, 
and Native Americans and other people of color can now request an appointment by calling the county's COVID-19 vaccine hotline at 406-751-8119 or through an online form at flatheadhealth.org slash COVID-19-vaccine. County Health Officer Joe Russell told the Beacon that those who do call the hotline should not expect a human to pick up, with the department experiencing more than a thousand calls a day from residents looking to get scheduled. Callers are asked to leave a voicemail with their name, date of birth, and phone number, and a way to call back. Individuals will be called back in the order that calls were received, but because of the immense interest, it could be several weeks from the time a call is placed and when an appointment is scheduled. In other news, Flathead County's Superintendent of Schools, Jack Egensberger, told the Flathead County Commission last week that the 2020-21 school year could be a, quote, lost year in education because of the impacts of COVID-19. Those include the periodic school closures and quarantines that many districts have experienced, partial remote learning for most students, and for those who are in school, a unique learning environment. Egensberger also revealed the county's 2020 enrollment figures, and those show a huge surge in homeschool students, who now number more than 1,500 in the county, a 119% increase from a year earlier. Despite that, enrollment at public and private schools is also up about 2%. And finally, a Northwest Montana lawmaker introduced two bills in the state house this week targeted at transgender youth. John Fuller, a Republican, said the two bills he sponsored, quote, protect children and only children from consequences they do not know about and protect girls' sports from being decimated. The two bills aim to ban transgender athletes from participating on school sports teams of the gender with which they identify, and the other prohibits doctors from offering certain medical treatments for trans youth. A House committee held a hearing on both bills Monday, and a number of opponents, including the Montana ACLU and the Montana chapter of the American Academy of Pediatrics, said the bills were a dangerous assault on trans youth and that at least the bill targeting athletes was likely unconstitutional. A similar law passed in Idaho last year was put on hold in August after it was challenged in court by the ACLU. That's our show for this week. Remember, you can read more about all of these stories and catch the latest breaking news for free on our website, flatheadbeacon.com. Until next week, thanks for listening.